Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Canines Talking Sense. I'm your host, Cameron Ford, and as usual, I am actually broadcasting from Set City in Las Vegas. However, this episode was actually recorded in Vienna, Austria. More about that in a second. This is episode number 88. We have some really great episodes coming up in the upcoming episodes in Canines Talking Sense. We have amazing guests such as Jens Frank from SWDI. We also have Laura Hanover from, she's actually a nosework instructor in France slash Switzerland. I did a seminar with her and we did a conversation in car rides with that podcast, which would be a lot of fun. I also did another uh, Trainers Jam podcast, and I'll leave my mystery trainers for a future episode or some other little teasers I'll do on social media. In addition to that, I am doing a podcast with Dr. Simone Gabois. Many of you may have heard of him and his research that he's done with Border Collies. Um, Ivan Balabanov has mentioned him and interviewed him on his podcast. So lots of great things coming up. And the reason why I've done a number of these recordings is because I'm going to be in Australia for the next two months. So if I'm a little bit of hard to get a hold of or I'm slow in replying to you, I apologize in advance because um, I'm going to be probably at times difficult to find Wi-Fi and catch up on messages. And I'm going to be in some cases a whole day ahead of you guys that are uh, following and watching uh, the episodes and social media and so forth. On that front, there's a lot of cool news up ahead with Ford Canine. I now have a social media manager uh, that just really helps me out. Many of you guys see I do all the editing, the video, the audio, all this stuff on my own, including social media. So I finally need some help with a lot of this information. So this will make things even easier uh, or more streamlined for me to keep putting out more content for all of you guys. Uh, we also have lots of new webinars coming up for the Ford K9 website, uh, more online classes, more videos. I have some really cool special projects coming up uh, with some great collaborations. I'm super excited about some of these things might happen by the end of this year, but really look forward to 2024. There's some amazing, amazing things coming up, uh, lots of fun collaborations and so forth. So I hope you guys stay tuned and look out for those things. Okay, on to this episode. Episode number 88 is with a guest I have had before, Florian Schneider of Kinotech. He also has a podcast called Kino Talk. And because I was in Austria doing a seminar at his facility, I thought it would be great to do a sit down with him and his business partner, who is also a Austrian police canine trainer, administrator, and handler. So we cover lots of great things this episode from uh, some surprising things like patrol work, bite work. We get into animal welfare and, of course, lots of detection. I really appreciate you guys. Please keep following us, leave comments. All of these things help us for a podcast. Clearly, like the last episode, the Trainers Jam session I did with Michael Ellis, Forrest uh, Mickey, and Natalie Morris, that has been our most downloaded podcast ever. If you haven't caught it yet, go check it out. It's also on video on our YouTube channel. So go watch it if you would like to. 
Um, as you can tell, we're doing a lot more of these videos. I can't thank you guys enough for the support. It, it really means a lot to me. This is our fifth year of doing the podcast. And this day and age with more and more podcasts out there for you guys to listen to, which is great. I really value that support you guys keep giving me in this podcast. And I, in turn, will keep giving you guys more information, some great guests to go listen to. So all of that said, let's get on to the episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Canines Talking Sense from Austria. I am here in Austria with my friend Florian, who's brought me here uh, to do a seminar in detection. Um, I also had him on in a previous episode, but we have a special guest, his business partner, Chris. But Flo, just for those who just need a quick recap of who you are, what you do, and then uh, you can introduce Chris and how you guys work together, and we'll kind of go from there. Definitely, yeah. Cameron, was great having you here. We did a, a four-day workshop about scent detection, odor pace, and handler skill development. And we already did another episode. As you already said, it was it's almost a year ago, I think. So we yeah. recorded that one in summer of last year, summer of 2020. And you launched it, I think, somewhere in November. Um, I was I could introduce myself back then a little bit, so... We're dog trainers from Austria from with different backgrounds. I have a civil background. I come from search and rescue. I've focused the past years on scent detection and our company, Kunotech, is now focusing on nose work, meaning scent detection, search and rescue, but also police work for searching for people in all kinds of other branches and talking about the scent detection. So in this workshop, we've had actually a broad setup of, of people um, coming from uh, Border Patrol or what's it called in English? Uh, border, uh, border Force. Yeah, we call it Customs, customs but exactly. yeah, you guys would call it Border Force. And border Customs, uh, German police. We had some guys from the Deutsche Bahn, which is a uh, uh, quite an interesting canine unit from the German railway company who are looking for wildlife around the rails and um, a few others from bed bug detection and some others who were really just interested into this subject. Since the last time we talked, few things have changed. So meanwhile, Chris is uh, with me officially in the show of Kunotech. And yeah, Chris, maybe you just introduce yourself and let everyone know what you're yeah, what's your background and what you've done and how did you guys get together? So first, thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, it's a pleasure. So like Flo said, um, I'm co-founder and I'm now in the company. I was back then a little bit behind the curtains. It's because of my uh, work. I'm a police canine handler and instructor. So I'm deputy head of the training um, and responsible for about 100 dogs and dog handlers. And in the past, it was a little bit tricky, but now um, everything is... is um, As I say, all is klar. All is klar. No. Um, I just don't, don't give a fuck anymore. <laughs> 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 I don't want it to say, say that way. But it's more or less like this. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. you have the freedom now to work as a private business and still do your government job. 
And your government job, is it primarily detection? Do you also have the biting dogs? What is that one like? So in Austria, we still have uh, uh, dual purpose dogs. More or less, we just have dual purpose dogs. So all our dogs are biting dogs. And they also trained in um, finding persons and have a barking indication. So we're searching for criminals and uh, missing persons the same way. Mm -hmm. um, this is a little bit tricky for us to train. So the dogs are not allowed to bite by themselves. And they're also trying to find articles with human scent on it. Okay. And if they are good enough, then they become a detection dog. And okay. then we have the normal um, topics like all the other units have. Mm -hmm. So we were talking the other day um, about some of the differences and, and things that go on. For your program, if it's a new person that's getting a new dog, how long is a school for, like, how long are they in school training before they can finally go out on their own? What's that time frame like? So when um officer enters our unit now, now or in the past few years, they got a puppy at the age between. Uh, so we buy them with eight weeks, mm -hmm. but then a dog handler raises them until the um, guys enter our unit. And then they are at the age of four months, okay, more or less. Um, then they are trained in my unit. But they have to go to our school and have to do their three modules. Okay. And the overall amount of 520 hours. And at the age of 18 months, they can go to the last module to be certified. Mm -hmm. But we want to push the age a little bit further mm -hmm. so that they become certified at the age of two years. Okay. Uh, be, because we had some troubles in the past with these young dogs. So the, what you guys have learned is investing in a significant amount of training time for both the officer and the dog. And then even further, from what it sounds like, you've learned if the dog is not of the appropriate age, being and from what you guys have learned, kind of under two years old, they may not be mentally strong enough or potentially there's other issues that come from being too young or asking too much of a dog of this age. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. And I think this is the, the bad luck of the Malinois, for example. They show up like they are ready, mm -hmm. but in the head, they aren't. Yeah. They also need the time to raise. Um, and we also have to do something like crowd and drive control, and therefore, you need strong dogs. They have to be grown up. Um, and if they are too young, it can be very hard for them. Um, and for sure, you won't lose a dog or uh, you try to avoid losing a dog in a crowd and ride control. Yeah. Um, if they have a bad connection there, you can kick him more or less out of the unit. Because if it can't do that part of the job, that kind of restricts it from what you can do for what your jobs are. Yeah, absolutely. The In the modules that you brought up and in those hours, is that just the patrol feature or is that does that also include the detection or is that separate? Uh, it's a separate. Okay. How long is typically going through detection? So after you've already done 
almost six months of training and then maybe more if the dog's not quite yes. old enough. What's de- and then I guess you guys would train, or not try, you would be active working the dog for a period of time. Yeah. And then you guys would decide if this is a good dog to do detection, correct? Yeah. Okay. If they do detection, how long is that time? Mm, around 12 weeks. Okay. It depends what, what topic you have to do. Um, explosives are a little bit longer. Narcotics are a little bit uh, shorter. Um, but the dogs go there and they already have established a passive indication um, from searching from articles. Okay. And then it's a little bit easier just to do the imprinting, the scent imprinting, and to show the new environment where the um, special needs are. So um, you, you just go wh- where your uh, further deployments will be. Yeah. And it sounds like because of the experience of being an active police dog, and like you said, doing article work, building a foundation that gives you a lot of the communication skills, how the dog knows how to indicate, all of that's already done before you technically start your detection. And when you add those pieces to an odor, this sounds like the dogs are obviously going to understand it a little bit faster. Yeah, absolutely. So... um, once they finish the formal school, is there a period of like training time to do or like, um, I would say supervised deployments or kind of are they on their own at that point? They can go back to work and it's, now the dog is a dual dog. So after certification, they enter their um, squad, okay. more or less. Mm-hmm. And then they have in their in their group, they have an instructor and they once a month, they have um, training with more skilled trainers and also for their detection. Okay. So one is for patrol mm. um, training one day and also one day for detection work. Okay. And then um, in that type of work, what are you looking for in a handler? You know, we have a lot of things we look for in dogs. What are, what are things that you guys have learned or found important to have a successful canine handler? Uh, this is a tricky topic. I think the most important thing is the cognitive competence okay. to suck up in a very short time um, all the knowledge you need to have to be not just a dog handler, um, but to be a dog trainer. Mm-hmm. So this is the goal, what I'm searching for. Um, to, to not train dog handlers. Mm-hmm. I want to train dog trainers. Mm-hmm. And this is the tricky part because they are just police officers yeah. and have to become a dog trainer because they need to have the, the possibilities and the knowledge how to solve small problems by themselves mm-hmm. and that they don't have to come to the instructors every single day. Yeah, uh, and that's... You know, I always share on this podcast or other videos I've done, the culture in Europe, you guys have, the dogs are a part of a lot of the lives of a normal person. There's many different dog clubs that exist. I would say the average person coming in has, that seeks to become a dog handler, has a decent level of what I would say basic knowledge of dogs because of how the world is over here and how important the dogs uh, already are and the different abilities that are, that exist to do these things. Um, 
To become a trainer, though, how long is a person considered, quote unquote, a, a handler before they're allowed to um, look at the opportunity to become a trainer? Um, at least there are no rules. Mm -hmm. um, as soon as you've finished the, the first examination with your dog, you can apply to become a, a trainer, mm -hmm. and then you have to run through the uh, trainer courses, and then you're there. Um, How long are the, or describe a little bit about the trainer's courses, what's in, what requires for that? It's more or less, so you need more or less two years because you have to um, go with a, with a um, young dog team from the very beginning to the end. And you also have to do some testings. Mm -hmm. um, so there's tested your knowledge, your abilities for decoying and so stuff. Yeah. So... Do you guys have a separate classification for a helper decoy? Is there a qualification for this, or is just everybody who's in the unit plays a role of this at some point? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's more like this. We also had an interesting conversation. You know, I know this podcast has always been geared towards detection, but we were talking about how, uh, like in California, and there's another state, I think it's New Mexico, they're looking at taking away biting dogs. And you said... This is something that's probably going to happen in Europe or at least in Austria, uh, maybe even other countries. Um, tell us a little bit about what's changed and why is that being looked at? Um, why would they get rid of biting dogs? What, do, what is the, the mindset here that says, well, we wouldn't want this type of dog anymore? So the, the biggest problem, if it isn't a problem, um, is that laws are changing, so animal welfare becomes more and more an uh, interesting topic for the society. And nowadays, it's not that easy like it was to just hit the dog in the public. Mm -hmm. And um, Not like that's what it's about. Yeah. It, it, is it coming from a place of... Culture has changed. Do they look at using dogs to bite people as it's too violent or it's too extreme? Or is it something... So the, the first thing on this in the United States, the argument that was brought forward by the politicians was it was a race-based type of uh, deployment. Like, uh, unproportionately, black or brown individuals are being bitten more. Turns out when they the companies that do all the record keeping were able to show that does not match what they're saying. That actually is, there's more Caucasians, whites being bitten. It wasn't a race thing per se. Um, but then they also looked at the mindset of the canine handlers and the canine handlers in various reasons or ex explanations by the politicians have a mindset to want to bite somebody to prove that the dog was good or prove that the handler was good. What is it like for you guys, or what do you see? Is there something that you see, Florian, or and for you, Chris? Is it a cultural? Is it the you know they're saying that this kind of thing is too violent, or like I said, or is it a social problem? What are they looking at as their as the reason to say, hey, politically, like you said, the Animal Welfare Act part of it is uh, driving it with them saying we don't need animals to be used in this way through the I would say the training right because there's no more e collars, there's no more pinch collars. Of these things depending on what the job is or, or where what part of europe we're in um 
so it seems like you said driven by social animal welfare, but is there a human component to this? Let me jump in real quick. So first of all, I'm not, I'm not, I've never been a police officer. I've not been involved in police work unless for the, for the workshops that we did in, in other countries with police. Um, but of course the, the Austrian animal welfare law affects me as a, as a, civil trainer a lot and in the end not everything is for the worst of course it's a it's a good thing to um take a closer look to the animal welfare also um that includes that there are more studies made um how is your dog feeling um what are the hormones looking like if stressed and so on um so that's a, a that's a good thing the the big problem i think is that the animal welfare is a very sexy tool for politicians mm-hmm. to gain votes for all different kinds of things there you have a big problem that um most of those politicians are not uh, professional vets or mm-hmm. um behavioral um trainers or maybe they know what the dog looks from the front and the back but that's it basically yeah. not to offend anyone but that's the thing so now they start playing with emotions of citizens um, starting campaigns that affect civils, but also authorities in in quite a hard hard way. Mm-hmm. So the things that you have uh, no um, um, talked about, like pinch collar, e collar, etc., those things are banned for civil people um, since I think two thousand and eight, or even longer, even longer. As since two thousand eight, we have the animal welfare certified trainer. Mm-hmm. And still police, etc., could have used some of those tools, but um, maybe Chris has more about that to say. And so those things we can't use anyways for years. And that's maybe an interesting point because you said trainers out here um, have to think more about training and to get an idea. Okay, you can't just hit or 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 choke the dog. Mm-hmm. You need to think around the corner how to not just stop behavior, but how to make wanted behavior happen. So it's not only negative aspects about those um, um, restrictions, but now it's getting worse and worse. And, and I probably soon our topic is, are we even allowed to have dogs as pets? And that's the extreme left wing part mm. of our society. So of course, this is a, I think it's a global thing, at least in the Western countries, but it, it's getting more and more um, from the vegans mm-hmm. um, to not keeping any animal, not just eating yeah. animals, which I have respect for. I'm, I'm, I love meat. I love, mm-hmm. love, yeah, yeah. I love animals, yeah. but um, I, I have quite some problems with the extremist side of well, and, and I've, like in other conversations, we all share the same goal. Those of us that love dogs or love animals in general, we all want the best for the dogs and other animals. And, you know, there's the extreme versions of a lot of things. And unfortunately, sometimes the extremes on either side are the loudest voices. And those of us of the majority that are kind of in the middle, we just don't speak up enough. And then all of a sudden... Uh, like you said, laws are enacted, things are done, and then everybody suffers. And and there's certain things that when it comes to animals, dogs specifically have been selectively bred by humans for certain things. So if we were not allowed to have the dogs, even as pets, this is 
beyond extreme because this isn't even in the good welfare of the dogs. One of the important things that truly needs to happen is investing in the training time. You know, um, that's what I would view as our probably our, our biggest issue in the United States when it comes to the law enforcement working dog programs is the handlers have no problem. They, they would be happy to train longer or have more time for their school. It's the administrations, it's the manpower issues, it's these things that supervisors or the leadership says, yeah, the dog stuff's important, but in my layers of importance, it's way down here. I have a bunch of other things ahead of that. Um, the conversation, I hope that comes from when they look at banning these biting dogs is maybe looking at, instead of banning, let's regulate and say, we need this much time to ensure officers and dogs are trained properly. Maybe taking a lesson learned from the dogs being at least two years old before they're allowed to go work the street, to have more maturity, um, the officer having more time, not being rushed, but being able to go through those processes, see different types of deployment options, um, how to best use the dog as what it's designed for, a location tool and a de-escalation tool, something that where people were more, and this needs to be shared and, and talked about more or posted more on social media versus how many different ways we can bite somebody or how many apprehensions do I have? And because that's what stokes the flames on either side when it becomes the argument. If we say, hey, let's slow down, let's look at the, how are we investing in our training how much time would we say is appropriate? But, and we all know not every program is going to agree what the proper training time is. Uh, training time is for sure one one big part. I all the time um, try to show up the picture of a, of a small boy or a girl who starts uh, judo, for example. They also start with a white belt. They mm -hmm. do some training. They do a testing, they earned a yellow belt, they do more training, they earn the next belt. Mm -hmm. And I also think this should be in the dog training. Yeah. So do step by step. And when the dog has earned the black belt, then you can start to go in the UFC cage fight. Yeah. And then he is grown up. Um, he has all the training he needs. Um, he has some, some solutions, how to solve problems. Um, and then I think the dog is able to serve on the streets. I really like that. I actually, that I like that model you described because I haven't heard it brought up in that way before. Instead of having just one certification, there's actually levels you go through. And once you reach this final level, then you're operational. But you have to accomplish. Right now, it's just kind of all lumped into one. Of course, we say, oh, are they good in obedience? Are they good in bite? But it's it doesn't get tested until the very end. Yeah. Instead of having these little progress things that you have to test for, get this, okay, do this. That I think that's a fantastic idea. And for sure, there can be a, a huge test at the end, but it should be more um, for for real life scenarios mm -hmm. than just doing some, let's say, like IPO testing with a yep. sleeve and walk healing 50 meters up uh, turn around turn always the same pattern yeah mm -hmm. i i don't know the certification in in the us but 
more or less in all the countries in Europe I know, they are very sport-related. Correct. Same with ours. And you don't need that. Yeah. Maybe we can discuss if a young dog shall show up healing some distance. But as soon as as he done, check mark Mm -hmm. next. Yeah. Our goal is to, to have dogs for the streets. So if I woke up a staircase healing, how far you will, will you come? Three steps. The dog doesn't see where he steps and he will fall down. So you have to th- train four or five different uh, transportations with healing, looking up like IGP, mm-hmm. maybe in a hand target, walking on the left side, walking on the right side, walking in between the legs. Mm-hmm. Um, behind. Behind. Weapons these, out, weapons, weapons not. Out. Yeah. Yep. Right. These are the things you need on the street and not healing on the... Perfect field. Perfect. <laughs> green. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. The, the, I, I could not agree more. And it brings me now to detection. Detection has had what I would call a very um, basic type of evaluation, uh, at least what we do in the States. And I'll give you guys kind of what we do, and you can tell me how much it matches what you do. In most programs in the United States, detection is looked at, and they find... Um, They'll say, we have five cars over here. In the five cars, there's going to be three fines. So it's just five cars. It means only two cars have nothing. It's exterior only, which for our laws is enough. Um, Then the other part of the test would be five rooms. And there might be three to two fines, depends on the certification programs. Maybe some will have an additional, let's say, packages or suitcases or something like this. But at that point, that's it. You're going to have three areas maximum. You're going to have, you know the answer. You know how many hides are in each area. You do this. Like in real life. Yeah, not in real life. Exactly. So it, so the way I usually share it is it's like an odor recognition test. It's, a, it's just put up with cars and rooms and, and that's all it is. There's no distracting odors out. And I won't say not all programs, you know, don't have distractors out. But a vast majority of these national programs do not require that there be placed distracting or proofing items or so forth. It's, it's, it's just, can the dog find the odor? Can they handle read it? What is your guys like in comparison to that? Do you have like a basic level odor recognition and then you go to operational review or is it all a kind of in one like that? Well, we developed something for Kinetech for our dog handlers, mm-hmm. which meanwhile, um, we were even asked to, um, test other mm-hmm. uh, uh, teams, other teams from, from outside. Um, so let me just give you an overview of, of what we thought about. We have three different stages. Uh, we have an SET, which is like the, uh, what's that word in English? Like if the dog will fit in, if it's okay. worth training the dog. Okay, so an evaluation is it? Is it can the dog do yeah, this do this work? Some kind of eval- evaluation. So, but that's not a must have. This mm-hmm. is actually just something that is part of our dog testing or selecting mm-hmm. phase. So this is a nice to have, but not a must have. Then in our internal um, rules, we have an, an uh, EBT, which is a mission, not a mission readiness, but a, a ready for mission training okay. test. And then we have the mission readiness test, which is called EST 
shortcut. That's our shortcut. We love shortcuts. You know? Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> of course. Most most people do. So, yeah. And uh, we have we have two branches right now. Which is one is bed bugs, one is explosives. So in in the bed bugs, we train the teams with the training set Kong or similar. Okay. And in the first test, they face four subjects. One of these subjects, and that's what we always start with, is uh, functional obedience. So the teams have to be able to heal from A to B. Uh, but we don't care if it's left or right, if the dog is two feet ahead or, or behind. Mm -hmm. It should look good. It should be an, in, in an orderly manner and um, that the dog can, the handler can transport the dog from A to B. There they have, um, there's the possibility of having different um, obstacles like a stairway or going through doors and the dog should just stay in position. Then there is also a short waiting exercise where the dog handle will be out of sight for like 20 seconds. But these are things that we always have in training, right? Getting the dog from the car, go to the training area, maybe other dogs around as we had at the workshop, even kids mm -hmm. and the dogs should just not be out of order. So that's the obedience part. Then in the preparedness test, we had, we start with a lineup. Mm -hmm. Um, we have three rounds. Yeah. Three rounds and there is a lineup with the uh, nine boxes. There are from zero to two possible finds in each. So group. zero exists as a possibility. Yes. Yeah. Okay. This is a single blind. So if the dog handler, um, has an indication, he just says indication. And he can do that before or after he recalled the dog because okay. there is no rewards allowed in our. Okay. Test. The box will be put away and mm -hmm. then he can start again or just continue to search from where he already found. Can it. they, if they're using a condition reinforcer or marker, are they allowed to give that? So if the dog indicates, if it would say was yes or free, sure, they sure, can say this. Sure, they can, but there's no primary reinforcer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, you're not going to use a toy or food. Yeah, yeah. But they could at least do that if they wanted to. That doesn't interfere sure, with the certification. It makes no sense because you can't they back don't it up. Know mm -hmm. If it's a false alert mm -hmm. or if they are right. Mm -hmm. right. And also in this lineup, um, we have um, different kinds of distractor sense. So we have a dog handler sense, like a key or a coin or uh, fire, lighter. Mm -hmm. Then we have the uh, um, sent objects from the classifiers. And then we have um, hard or difficult uh, distractor sense like um, food, cheese, um, or also other cut dog toys. Okay. So this is basically it. The next search subject is either or. So we will uh, like throw a coin if it's a, a room search or a car search. So the teams have to prepare for all, but okay. they don't know until the test which what, one it is. Which one it is. Okay. Right. And also there, in both cases, we have zero to two fines. Mm -hmm. The special thing about this is that um, either room or vehicle, a uh, vehicle is actually interior and ulterior, is that it's a double blind. Uh -huh. So we have a helper who will follow the team doing a, 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 a video call. Okay. And the classifiers are sitting in a different room. So we just need the second person filming it so that we are sure that dog handler is not searching himself. Right? Okay. So they're not going hands-on looking for themselves yeah, exactly. after they maybe their dog indicated they want to yes. confirm, so they look themselves. And we want to not have the uh, clever hunts. Yes. So we start the video call. Then we say, okay, move. And then we mute ourselves so that we're not like, ah, 
what a dickhead. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 And um, so this is a proper double blind. Also, we have um, defined things like the dog handler is not allowed to search or open cupboards, etc. So okay. it's really just about the dog's nose. And there are possible distractors like neutral objects. So these are, we, we said we have already quite hard, difficult distractors in the lineup. So we have uh, not reward, neither um, targets and associated distractors there. So okay. it's just like, um, it's, it's not a proofing things. item. It's a dis it's true distracting item. Yes. So if there was a candle here, I just put it there. So yeah. it switched places and somehow we changed the send picture. In sure. The so this is it. Also for the car and the uh, and the room, the scent must be there for minimum two or one hours. Okay, I don't have any mind. Yeah, that's actually a good point. Uh, just to quickly add to that was the research that Dr. Hall had done about um, when we put something in a, into a space an odor. The typical waiting time used to, was thirty minutes, mm. and he was showing how most odors at thirty minutes they've peaked before that, mm. and they're dropping down. And it's almost like equilibrium almost. Yeah. Yeah. So. When you first put it out, it's really, it's really reactive yeah. to whatever space you have because it doesn't belong there. And then just before, right around 30 minutes, so this isn't every chemical, this is, was quite a few, it dropped going down kind of low before it kind of came back up closer to an hour later, becoming stronger again. Because mm -hmm. it's almost like, uh, like altitude in a sense, like you, your yeah. body has to adjust. So at first it's like strong to you, yeah. but then you're there for a while, you're like, oh, okay, I feel better. Uh, this is probably a crappy analogy, but in, in a way, it's just when you introduce something new, it's reactive. Yeah. It takes some time to kind of settle and then it starts permeating from there. Mm. So that's actually a good point um, because the rules we used to always go by was 30 minutes. Now, mm. the first dog may have the short end of the stick on this because the dog that's number five may run at an hour and 25 minutes later. Yeah. And that dog's picture of the odor is different than the dog's. And I see this in the sport world all the time. Mm. I saw it in the working dog world, never knew why that was happening. Interesting. Um, but it is, it, now there's some science to kind of say, we can see this happening. Um, again, not every type of chemical does the same thing, but a majority can do this. Mm. Some are super reactive longer. This is why it's important we know what we put out and have a general time frame like you guys are doing an hour to two hours because at this point from what i understood reading the research and i'd have to have dr hall like comment on it further but there's a point where it's more equal for a longer period of time and the dogs facing that have a more uh more or less the same picture dog yeah. to dog so that's actually pretty good mm. of course we also have time time limits there so for the indoor search is or the room search is seven minutes i think and the car is nine minutes because we have exterior now and yeah and then there is the last search and we one thing we check the protocol if the handler is searching um like he explained it before to us yeah and we put out some things like an open knife uh-huh if he is checking open scissors knife um for safety yeah yeah okay or also just a, a an open candy pack yeah which would simulate maybe poison of something or so you you want to see that the handler thinks thinks yeah. looks at their area is it safe to even deploy my dog now let's just say you guys put out a knife or do whatever the person identifies this do you then uh you guys take those things out if they call that out correctly exactly we we tell them 
Correct, please. If they don't notice this, is it still left out, or does the person who's with them say you missed something? You have to remove it before they start the search. Then we would say stop. Yes, because you're watching it live, but at a distance. Put okay. The out. Uh, and it goes on your sheet yeah. that they missed this. Okay, yeah, this is this is really good stuff. And 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 the important things actually are that we don't rate these things. But I'll get to that later. Okay. And the last search subject is a ground search because these um, basic assessments and um, the teams afterwards could go in wildlife detection or bad bugs or uh, mod or whatever. Mm -hmm. right? And there they have a hundred square meter of uh, possible one to three finds because we need at least one search subject that has an area, that has at least one target hidden. So yeah. in your worst case or worst or best case, yeah. you would have. I don't know, something like nine targets mm -hmm. or just one target in three different circles. Yeah. Is it at the evaluator's discretion which area is blank, which areas have hides? We tried to do it randomly okay. by using an app. Ah, a randomizer. Yep. So we, so we are not responsible mm -hmm. for the... For who has how many. Yeah. How do you prevent, let's say, this team goes through, they do their search, but there's five more teams to go. What do you guys do these days to prevent information being shared? Um, each team uh, has a different car. Each team has a different ah, car. So there's no way. I like no it. Way. And everyone has different. And But because the teams know what they're preparing for, there is no, oh, damn it, Chris just had two targets, I had seven. Uh huh. Well, that's what you prepared for. Or the dog contaminated the area. Yeah. Right. And the other dogs paying attention to this. So the the only thing where we're um, how to say cheating our randomizer is, for example, we ha we really have five teams, for example, or six teams, um, and we know that we have just three cars, but maybe four rooms. Well, then we just split it in half. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But still, each and every team has their own thing. So we also don't have an indication at a spot where another dog. Uh, indicated from yes, uh, before. If it was false too, yeah. that has yeah. a yeah. And the most important thing, and this is what we have dis discussed a lot about, is we want the dogs to find a hundred percent. Okay. So mm -hmm. we don't accept a miss or a false seven out of eight. Okay. So the, the all, thing, yeah. Sorry, continue. All all the tests we know all over Europe. They are also explosive dogs can miss one or two heights. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's, I don't understand it. Mm -hmm. So for sure, it's good that he finds seven bombs, mm -hmm. but why is he certified when all, everyone knows that he can miss mm -hmm. the last one? And, and there's a conversation too. Why did the miss happen? Was it a handler error? Was it? That, that's a good point. So we, we, each one of us knows that if we really want to, we will um, trick the dog. Sure. Or the handler. Sure. I mean, we, we can, we, we call it fuck you hides. Yeah. You can always, yeah. that, that's not the that's goal. Always, no. that's of always, exactly. And that's not the goal in the test. And that all also um, gets me to the, the rating. So what do we want to test in the test? So, for example, I don't want my dog handlers to fail just because they forgot the knife, because that's nothing that would kill the dog or the sure. handler. This is sometimes caused by n being nervous, 
and, uh, and, and, and being nervous and forgetting about common sense just to put those things away. Sometimes dog handlers who are in a test situation get to think very complicated and, and think, oh, this is an obstacle and we search around it or something like this. Mm-hmm. We also don't want a dog handler to fail because they, ser- they say they search the car from left to right and then they start to search from right to left. What we rate is, is the team um, able to find all hidden targets in the given time and have no wrong indications, no false positives? Mm -hmm. And if the team looks like shit doing it, if they don't follow their protocol, but they still got 100% fines and 0% fails, why why wouldn't they uh, succeed Mm -hmm. in in the test? Um, what we also wanted to do is that the dogs are able to show these tasks not being rewarded every time. Oh, so there, very good point. there are no rewards in our test. The dog handlers can, before they start the search, they can do a game. I, I don't even care if they throw out a, a piece of target sand and let the dog indicate it. Mm-hmm. But as soon as they say, well, now we're ready, now search. Time is running, and mm-hmm. for this time, there is no rewards, mm-hmm. no primary reinforces. Mm-hmm. Let's be specific. Um, and we want our dog handlers to search at least one time, like in a deployment, meaning no one is around who could know if, where, or how many targets are hit. Mm-hmm. So we have uh, we have two single blinds, and we have minimum one um, double blind, mm-hmm. and we think. That's a good thing. We define, for example, that um, the targets that are hidden should are not allowed to be visible for the dog handler, but they can be from zero to ten cent- centimeters deep. Okay. So we look out for hidings that are possible to find if you cover the area. Mm-hmm. It's not about to trick the dog handler. Mm-hmm. And also, what we've already had is if we have a false positives mm-hmm. that we would get a fully trained dog to check. Yeah. Is this reasonable? Yes and no. Or for example, if if the target is hidden um, left beside the oven on the ground and the dog is indicating on the top right of the oven, well, what else should it be? Yeah. Right? So it doesn't have to be on point. Yeah, it doesn't have to be exactly right there because it's exactly. we call it reasonable. Is it reasonable yeah, it that you would find yeah. it yeah. on this? And th- there's a couple of really good things I, I, that I definitely want to uh, bring up. Um, so first is, like you said, we're not rewarding on the search uh, and the certification because it, they may be wrong. Um, and, and I have had many discussions and debates um, on if you've trained properly, you should have the option to reward if you want to. Now, this is this is just deployments and things like that, not, not a certification. I like the idea, and the reason why I like the idea when you guys explain it, it goes back to your training. Your training has already built this in. Many times in most detection dog programs I've watched and been a part of myself, uh, traveled and seen, they're not building that in training. So what usually happens is training is a reward every time. And then reality, they don't reward for the exact things that you mentioned. And then it becomes very clear to the dog in this condition, it sucks. And this condition is great. 
you guys have done a great job of building those conditions into your training. Therefore, when it happens on a certification or happens on a real deployment, it's no different to the dog. This is a common thing that happens. Sometimes they're going to indicate, you're going to call your dog back to you. You're going to put the dog into position, maybe like you said, between your legs or to your side or whatever. And then in some cases, if it was real world, you'd start your search or do whatever. Right. Um, in certification, you just call the hide and then you'd move on to your next area. Um, it, I, 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 again, because you build that in your training, and I've seen it now myself quite a bit, it's awesome. The other part that you do that really makes this work is you guys will randomly reward the dog while it's searching for searching. The dog's searching, you'll call the dog to you, give the dog a toy, let him get something for searching, especially if the search is going, let's say, three to five minutes or so, and they haven't found anything yet. They, You guys in training will just bring the dog to you, play, give the dog something, and then back to work again. That concept for most American detection dog training and trainers would could break the brain a little bit because they would look at it and say, why would I reward my dog for anything other than finding odor? My, if I do this, if I give my dog a reward just for searching, it would deplete my search. My, my, dog, would, my dog would just play around, let's say, pretending like it's searching, even though it's not necessarily the case, and then just look to me for a reward because it expects the reward. To me, that's just bad training then. You're not communicating properly if this is happening. Mm -hmm. um, and some of this might be frequency. Like with uh, the other trainer that you work with, the guy with the, with the beard. I forget his name. What's his name again? Andy. And we had a conversation with him about his dog. Maybe the frequency too was too high. But it, not doing it is way worse because like he brought up, not rewarding at all for searching was also causing a problem. And then also the, the indication started would have fading effects. So everything has to be dog dependent. We all understand that. But I love the concept of being willing to reward my dog for search at whatever point I think it's necessary. If I see the dog maybe coming down a little bit, let's stop for a second, let's play, let's do something. This is rewarding. Okay, let's have fun again. It reinvigorates many dogs, especially if they're selected properly. They want to keep doing the game because they know they might find something. And if you do have a zero, you still have accomplished the same game of yeah. the conversation of, do I reward a blank or not? Well, you guys have already built that in because you're rewarding for searching at various times. And what we saw uh, when we started to, to reward the search, the dogs were more relaxed in the search. Yes. They, uh, have, they weren't as frantic days. because they had to find something without getting reward, right? They, they, they were more calm because... They understood, okay, I don't have to find something. I have another opportunity for being rewarded. And there we saw a huge, huge advantage and a change in the dog's mindset. And the dog started really good work. How do you answer the question for those that would say, I would never do that because now my dog might solicit me for a toy because all it did was search for 15 seconds. I know how I would answer that. I'm just curious to see how you guys would answer that question. What was the question? How, how, do you, how do you have the conversation with somebody that says, why would you ever reward for anything other than finding something? 
because if you reward for them searching, you're, you, you could get a dog that will just look to you to get a toy after searching for 10 seconds. Mm. So I think the, if I, if I may step forward, <laughs> <laughs> um, the thing is what we call key behavior. So the, the branch of detection has always two key behaviors that are most important. And that's the indication behavior. Mm -hmm. And that's searching the odor. Mm -hmm. um, and training based, um, a big focus is on the indication. As we said, and yeah. we got, got through the, the past four days. So the thing that the dog has, the, the majority of all rewards was always sitting, staring, standing, staring, or whatever. So what dogs started to do when we prolonged the searches and we we were on a fixed ratio of rewarding, the dogs thought, well, I'm not finding nothing. I'm not finding nothing. There is no way for me to gain any sort of reward. Well, I just stand still and stare uh -huh. because this might get me something. And since the dog already had the, the, the majority of rewards with this behavior, the behavior already was self-reinforcing. So I couldn't even punish the dog for doing something that was just fun doing. Uh -huh. That's why we started uh, to reward also the key behavior of searching. And we have to understand that both behaviors are cued in a different way. Uh -huh. The handler only cues the dog to search. The environment cues the dog to indicate. So already there, we have two different behaviors that shall be rewarded differently. The dog has two chances of get, um, oh, we, I, I like to say the dog has three chances to get out of a search. He finds something and indicates, I recall him and reward or restart mm -hmm. or he collapses. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's yeah. the only three ways. And yeah. when he indicates, he has three ways to get out of the indication. He gets rewarded. I recall him and restart or quit because we found what we got or he collapses. <laughs> <laughs> there shouldn't be any other chances yeah. for the dog to get out of there. And we can only um, make this happen if we give the dog the, the opportunity of being rewarded by something else as well. I, I, well, I wanted to say what you guys... No dog was harmed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what you guys have been able to do is highlight the main reason why many of us in the United States deal with what we'll call false alerts. That's the lingo that we use most often. And that's the dog giving you, like you said, an indication when there's no target odor there. Um, there's many people that use very, but just for the sake of the podcast and for people watching, a false alert, the way we're describing it right now, just means the dog has indicated or given indication behavior and there's no odor there. And the reason you gave why this happens is one of the most re common reasons why. Yeah. So, I like what you said, it's the indication behavior, it's indication-like behavior. Correct. So the dog is not indicating, he no. shows behavior that led him to reward, reward in the past. In the past. And that, I, stop me if I talk too much, that leads <laughs> me to another thing that um, that uh, con uh, targets the, the variable reinforcement schedule also in our test. The dog is still somehow rewarded when I recall him. Mm -hmm. We just forbid you to to offer a primary reinforcer. So the way we train, uh, come here, or search, um, is always a sort of a reward because it lets the do the dog do something that he likes and that he knows and he has a, a clue of. Thank you. So 
they are rewarded permanently. As soon as I get the dog from the car, uh, it's it's pre-make, pre-make, pre-make. Yes. Because they're allowed to do one thing after the other that they know and they like and then and they know it could lead to a reward and that's the casino. Yes. Um, the the gambler mindset, exactly, as we say. Exactly, the gambler mindset. So we we want to have players. That that's this is one of the most important conversations detection community needs to have, which is exactly what you're bringing up and I've tried sharing in various ways, sometimes poorly, sometimes I'm better at it, but we have to, um, like you said, create, there, there's only so many solutions to get out of the search or to get out of the alert. Um, I love, the one thing I haven't done that I really like that you guys do is, like you said, um, the dog finds odor, it's sitting there, it's waiting for you either to maybe come up Maybe the reward to be delivered there, maybe to be marked and come back to you, or maybe to be recalled back to you to position to either restart again or get reward. But having those options is now we're at three possibilities in a sense, like you were saying, the dog is more likely to hold a behavior because there's not a predictable, a, a constant predictable that creates the anticipate or anticipation behaviors. Mm -hmm that start breaking down over time. Because if I'm predictable, the dog will anticipate, especially if the motivation is high, then it starts breaking down the behavior because if it knows I'm always gonna walk behind it to reward, or I'm always gonna walk up to reward, or I'm always gonna mark and reward, these behaviors will start breaking down because it's predictable now. And if it's highly motivating, so then, like you said, now let's add, if there's no odor in this space, and the only way to get rewarded is to do the, the trained final response, whatever it is for the dog. Well, how do I get out of here? There's no odor here. They're not leaving. I'm not going anywhere. Well, this thing is the stinkiest thing in the room. So I'm going to pay attention to this. Or like you said, just randomly offer the behavior that looks like the trained final response. And maybe that will give me what I want. Because most handlers, when this behavior happens, and there's no odor present. Many handlers do see that it's not the same as it is when there's odor there. But when they don't know the answer, they're not confident. And when they're not confident, the dog's not confident either. And back to the points you guys made, there's been errors in rewarding, which then makes them now nervous on operational deployments because I've been wrong in training enough times, I could be wrong here. So it's better off just not even rewarding on real searches because I don't know the answer. So it's just, it's this perpetual cycle that's been created on our own versus looking at detection, breaking it down into a couple different pieces. I can reward for searching. I can reward for being at odor. And then when I'm at odor doing my training final response, I have options. I may come up, I may release you, I may call you back to me, like you said. And by having these few different options, the dog now loses some of this predictability. And then the anticipation related to that one thing that was predictable, now I can strengthen the behavior and stay at odor because I don't know for sure which one's going to happen. But I do know something is going to happen. Exactly. Sooner or later. Yeah. Not knowing when. So we think also this um, reward of the search behavior um, can help a lot uh, when you get real false alerts on uh, in, in the very beginning of uh, distractor sense, because um, we have we have our approach, and also what we like to say is that this is how we work here and now. 
So we have worked differently and hopefully we will evolve and, and work differently in the future. But right now this, this works quite well for us. Um, but for example, if a dog indicates on something that he shouldn't and we sit it out and they start searching again and again, investigate what they have just indicated to mm-hmm. and then move on. I want to reward this decision, for example, mm-hmm. to, mm-hmm. okay, they, they even get more intense at, at something that they shouldn't pay that much um, attention to mm-hmm. move on. That's it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. So that's a handy tool. It, it works great for doing things like height and depth. Mm. When we want persistence to odor, mm. we can mark and reward efforts Yes. and it becomes clear or clearer versus holding off and doing nothing until it does a perfect final response. And if they're not super confident working that odor yet, because of its condition, heights, depth, there may be a mixture of something there. We need to, in the beginning stages, show that effort can also get you something. So try to communicate to me. If you smell this, mm. communicate to me. Or if it's difficult, do your best to communicate. And then in these certain stages of training, we're, we're rewarding these efforts because then they become more pronounced later on in training. There was another interesting piece from the seminar that we got to talk about, uh, which is that habitual learning context and dogs who had done a lot of the same thing or had a strong history of searching some type of thing, um, that prevented it from being actually flexible when uh, there was one variation that was brought into the equation. Uh, the one specifically the seminars, like today what we did was having... Um, the, the typical wall setup. And all I did was put odor off to the side just slightly, a little bit. But the dogs had been so focused at searching this thing, just breaking off what was it? It wasn't even a half of a meter. It was, I think it was less than that. Yeah. It was hard for the dog to, it got so focused, I had to search here, even though odor was over here. A couple dogs did. A couple dogs broke off and worked it out and got there. But what we got to see was us as humans, we get so fixated on a way of doing or focusing heavily on searching or focusing heavily on an indication or whatever it is that we habituate something so strong that when there's a variation or something can't happen that way, that strength in the behavior actually inhibits flexibility to try something. Do you want to talk about a little bit about that at all? Or We had the scenario that uh, at, the, at the locker's backside yeah. facing the hole. Uh, we also have this stand, the pole, the pole, and uh, we had the target stand in little aluminum. Yeah, little small tins. Tins. Okay. Yep. And with magnet. So I could put multiple magnets on this wall. All on the wall had nothing, but on the little pole that was about a foot away, you know, for us, um, had the odor in it. So when the dog, the dogs kept focusing on the wall and had a hard time just breaking away this way to say odor was here. Yeah. Um, it wasn't that odor was a problem, but they were so fixated because of the history of always searching something in front of me like a wall that they couldn't break off to the side and say, it's over here. So yeah. I, I wasn't there. Yeah, yeah. I, I just think it also can be that the dog is very influenced by the handler, how the handler behaves in the back. Mm-hmm. So... If the dog is all the time finding in front of the handler, of course. facing this yep. specific wall, and the dog never ever will have the possibility to find on my backside or yes. on my left or right, yep. I think in this context, 
the dogs will start to ignore all the other parts. Correct. That's the habitual part. It's always in front of me. And in 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 one part, for sure, we reinforce it mm -hmm. because we want the dog in front of us. We want to be in his back. Mm -hmm. um, we want to see where the dog is searching. Mm -hmm. But for sure, I absolutely agree. Mm -hmm. From time to time, it makes sense to put odor completely out of the context mm -hmm. and and try to see if the dog will will be willing to be flexible to try something and, and yeah. follow the scent uh -huh. to to the target it, it was it you bring up an exercise that i do a lot and i and i got it initially from cognition and it was the same thing it was about because we're we're creatures of habit we do things the same way and the dogs read our body language extensively so exactly what you described is I have the handler face something in front of them, a wall or whatever it is, but the odor target is behind them, but not very far. It's just mm -hmm. over here. Mm -hmm. So as the dog is searching the space, they will tend to search the space that you are facing right. versus being willing to even look behind you. So the exercise is, it's not, I don't make, I make it pretty easy as far as it's not like a huge room. It's actually a pretty small space but I only let you face one direction and the odor is directly behind you. So there's a couple effects that happen. Um, a majority of dogs work in front of the handler and they stay focused that way. Some dogs pick up the odor and they say, hey, it's over here, but they realize you're not turning around to face them. So I call it being lassie. The dogs will come over to the handler like, hey, it's over here. And they run back to the hide. They still don't do anything. They come back, hey, it's over here. And they try their best to tell you. Then there's the other, then there's the, what I would say, the dogs that are, let's say, more uh, experienced. Mm. They go to the odor and they'll stay there. It's a smaller percentage of those types of dogs, but those dogs are like, hey, I'm staying here until you figure it out. Um, but it's a pretty interesting experiment. I always tell handlers to try because it really lets you know how much your social reference, your, your body language right. has had in the dog's way to solve the problem of odor. Yeah. And we see it a lot of times where dogs will alert, but realize you're not, they're not, their back's not to you. So they'll, they'll make their indication and then pivot themselves so their back is to, to you. Um, and that's a very clear understanding that the dog says, oh, in this condition, my back must be towards you because I know you're going to reward this way. Again, it's predictability and anticipation aspects. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it was a, it's definitely a fun little experiment we did today. And it showed us a little bit of how. Uh, this happened and what caused that? Mm. I think that's that's a very interesting point, and and it and it must create myths for the dog, right? Because mm -hmm. they start believing that they could only find where we're looking at and where we're facing. And this is like um, our ancestors yes. started to watch the nature. And I don't know, this is a stupid example, but you know, <laughs> they have seen that shape of cloud and. Always at the same time, birds were flying from the left to the right. So they thought when it's like birds and clouds, this kind of weather will appear. Yes. And, and it must be like that. But maybe the birds were really just by, by chance. Mm -hmm. So the dogs should learn that, um, never minding where we are faced, when we cue them to search, they should just use their nose to find yeah. wherever it could be. And that's the important part that we talked about throughout the seminar was, what in what various ways can we really make sure odor is the most important thing and that was a lot of fun between all of us because 
many dogs. I don't think there was wasn't a dog that didn't know odor. I, every dog there knew odor. It was the other things that prevented the dog to either tell you they found odor or there was confusion when they did find odor. And that, again, there was a number of different reasons why. There wasn't any like standalone reason. Um, sometimes it was handlers. Sometimes it was um, being not or, or too much direction. Some handlers being too involved. Some handlers not being involved enough. Um, it varied. But what we got to have a good conversation on was we focused heavily, like you said, there was so much focus in many trainings towards uh, odor. I'm sorry, towards towards searching and towards indication. But odor had fallen down that chain a little bit too far. And we had a good conversation about how, depending on the dogs, do we raise the level of odor to be really important, searching really important, and then indication important. Because the second two, searching and, and indication, can't happen without odor being there. So just tweaking little things that we could do to make odor really important uh, helps those other things that we spent a lot of time on. And that habitual learning that we had created sometimes overrode the importance of odor. And it's good to have these fun conversations where we can say, how can we look at this team or how can we look at this dog and make sure we push odor back higher in its important scale? Yeah. So it was, it was a lot of fun. And, and I really appreciate you uh, having me out here and, and doing this. And I know we can talk for hours more on, on all these different topics. And I think this is a good point for a lot of people to kind of take in what we've, what we've been sharing and maybe ask questions to themselves, um, maybe ask questions to us at some point. Um, again, how do people find you? How do people, yeah, I know you're on social media. I know you have, uh, I think I'm pretty sure you have your website um, and you have a podcast as well, which this will be also on. How do they find you? People find us on our website, as you said. It's uh, uh, really hard. It's really hard for me to spell. Kinotech? Yeah, kinotech.at. Okay. <laughs> for Austria, AT, right? Yeah, yep. yeah, right. Um, but you find us on Facebook, on Instagram, meanwhile, even on LinkedIn, and at least me on, on Twitter. Oh, you're a Twitter guy now. No. Oh, you're... you're... But, uh, people swore to it. <laughs> yes. Of course they by a U.S. citizen, I was ah. forced to join um, Twitter for for a live broadcast and it, join in real quick. It, and, Elon, uh, thanks you. <laughs> yeah, no, it was fun. Um, uh, but there you you find us. So the website, Facebook, yeah, Instagram, etc. And uh, of course, we have our private profiles. Yep. Um, but those are not that interesting. <laughs> you can. Get in touch with us through those uh, yeah channels. And yeah, we're very happy if you also listen to our show. Our interview with Cameron was one of the first ones we yeah. ever did. Um, so our show is quite young. We have it since last year, last summer. And it's called Kuno Talk by Kuno Tech. You also find that on almost every yeah. common podcast. Yeah. App. Um, I recommend you've done a lot of great interviews, and and you're one of the few people that have delved deeper and. Uh, pulling out sometimes emotions out of people that would shock somebody. Yeah. yeah. They would be surprised like, wow, that person's really uh, connected or has feelings that you wouldn't expect. So I, 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 I don't want to spoil it because I want people to listen to the episodes because there's some good stuff. I joked around. I said, you're like Oprah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the Austrian Oprah. Yeah. yeah. Now we had some really nice and uh, 
very deep conversations, as you said, uh, interviewing some of our guests and people who uh, we look up to and people who we were interested in, mm -hmm. people who we knew, people who we don't know that well and who we got to know. So I thought that's really interesting to um, have a look at the person themselves. Yeah. And now also we dive into several topics as we had with Jens, um, the, what, what kind of... Uh, Training AC uses, but for, for, for training the search, like sand wheels or lineups mm -hmm. or search boards or brick walls, et cetera. So this is also yeah. our latest uh, episode. It, it's a, it's, it's a great thing to talk about all the pros and cons to the different, uh, um, so that camera went out, then this one went out. No, this one's not shot. Okay. This one's out. Okay. With like this camera will destroy itself in five seconds. I, guess. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what made it stop earlier. Okay. So anyway, the, the I, I think that was a great episode uh, that you had with Jens. And I look forward to having you guys come to the United States doing some seminars with myself uh, over at the Michael Ellis School. And I, I hope I get to come back to Austria at some point. So I know we've already been planning some ideas for that. With some cognition and yeah. some other stuff. Yes, stay tuned. Yes, we will Matthew be. Cameron will return to Austria. <laughs> <laughs> and then also plan some time for just relaxing. In yeah. The, in the wine hills of beautiful. Australia. Yes, it is. Absolutely... Being wasted. Yes. <laughs> it's very beautiful here. That is for sure. And, and, and having a lot of fun is an extra bonus too. Well, I thank you guys again. Thank both of you for coming on the on the podcast. And as I always say on Canine's Talking Sense, thank you for tuning in, and it's okay to be nosy. <laughs>